This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, all. Welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I started this podcast a little over three years ago to reach those of you who might already be interested in psychological and emotional issues to those of you who might have just been diagnosed and are looking for some answers, and you've got a lot of questions, or maybe you're having a relationship issue that doesn't seem solvable but also to a third group, those of you who might really have a lot of stigma against mental health treatment or not understand it or not know what goes on, but you're also curious to see what a therapist might have to say about particular subjects. I'm a therapist and this isn't therapy, but perhaps this will give you a clue as to what it could feel like. So welcome to all of you. I've had several people write to me lately and explain they're just pulling out of a slump or, even worse, clinical depression. And frankly, they're scared. They feel well enough to go back to work if they've been off. It's time for them to pick up their responsibilities, maybe after a family leave or even a hospitalization, or just after thoughts that were very dark and frightening to them drew them into depression. Or they suffered a loss or death that overwhelmed them, and it's a few months later and their job or their friends are concerned that they're not back in the saddle. Is there a schedule of some kind for what's supposed to happen after depression has struck? How do you deal with some of the destructive choices you may have made when you were depressed? We'll talk about the factors that are important and how to work with and manage your insecurity and fear of your depression returning. We'll also touch today on some newer treatments, One is transcranial magnetic stimulation, and the other are ketamine infusions. These both are being used effectively with depression that seems to not respond to other treatment and tends to recur. The listener email, which is a regular feature of self-work, is from someone who calls herself a social chameleon, but it's not intentional. It's been growing in her awareness, but up till now, being a social chameleon happened quite without it being her intention. I thought it was a fascinating question, so we'll talk about how do you hang on to yourself when you're around others and you don't become a social chameleon. In fact, I can remember when I was learning how to dance as a teenager, my best friend used to say to me, Margaret, every time you stand by somebody, you dance just like them. Stop doing that. You're embarrassing yourself. So I guess that was my teenage version of being a social chameleon. But it can have serious implications because you lose yourself. So we'll talk about that today on self-work, as well as how to confront your fear of your depression returning. When a major depression strikes, it can be devastating. I've termed it often the psychological equivalent of an accident with an 18-wheeler. We'd never expect someone who'd been in an accident like that to not take time to heal, lots of time. You have to slowly pull the pieces of yourself together. Maybe you don't even at times recognize yourself. We can all see it when there's been a sudden trauma. For example, if you're hit by a car or robbed at gunpoint, we diagnose that often as PTSD, where there's hypervigilance and a sense of danger lurking around every corner, a severe startle response hyperactivity to your environment, or a marked apathy toward it. 
But when you become severely depressed for any reason, when your reality has darkened either quite suddenly or with time, you have to do a lot of work to regain a sense of emotional stability. Depression and anxiety can go hand in hand. In fact, I've never seen someone who'd become highly anxious who wasn't depressed by that very anxiety. So it does take time and a lot of work. Let's briefly go over the symptoms necessary to be diagnosed with major depression. Here's how they're outlined by the Mayo Clinic. Depression can occur only once during your life, but often people have multiple episodes. And during these episodes, these symptoms happen nearly every day. And here they are. Feelings of sadness, tearfulness, emptiness, or hopelessness. Angry outbursts, irritability, or frustration, even over small matters. Loss of interest or pleasure in most of all normal activities. Sleep disturbances, including insomnia or sleeping too much. Tiredness and lack of energy, so even small tasks take extra effort. Reduced appetite and weight loss or increased cravings for food and weight gain. Anxiety, agitation or restlessness. Slowed thinking, speaking or body movements. Feelings of worthlessness or guilt, fixating on past failures or self-blame. Trouble thinking, concentrating, making decisions, and even remembering things. Frequent or recurrent thoughts of death, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, or suicide. And unexplained physical problems, such as back pain or headache. In the U.S., recent estimates show 16 million adults had an episode of major depression in the course of a year, and suicide rates rose substantially between 1999 and 2016, increasing by more than 30% in 25 states. Now, major depression differs from the more moderate version of depression termed dysthymia or the more recent diagnostic term persistent depressive disorder, whose symptoms can last longer but may not be as severe. Now, one can morph into the other one in either direction. You could go from severe depression to dysthymia and from dysthymia to more major depression. But certainly, major depression is more severe, and when you experience it, it literally can wipe out your sense of knowing who you are, what makes you tick. The sorrow and fogginess can seem never to lift, and it's an effort to brush your teeth. With therapy, medicine, exercise, homeopathic alternatives, mindfulness, getting your sleep regulated, nutrition, good nutrition, or some combination of the above, your mind and your heart can heal. Yet even if your depression was a one-time thing, it could be hard to trust yourself to go forward and remain stable. That episode was so scary or so frightening that you can grow afraid to risk or afraid to be stressed or afraid that once again something might happen that would trigger another episode. And of course, that fear is increased if you experience more than one episode in your lifetime. And you may feel as if you don't have control over the very quality of your life. Your psychological and emotional well-being can be likened to sailing on a sailboat. You count on your sail to get through your rough waters, your skill at sailing. You use those skills to guide yourself through when you're disappointed or hurt. And you have trust that your sail will hold and that your skills will provide safety. But what if that sail gets ripped? That's what happens with severe depression what if you thought you could count on your very mind and it doesn't work for you like it should? What if your sense of self shatters when your world goes dark? How are you supposed to trust that it won't rip again if things get bad enough? 
You can begin to question and be afraid of every nuance of your mood. Am I getting depressed? Am I headed for another paralyzing bout? I've talked about the importance of knowing your triggers, and this becomes very important when you're dealing with recurrent depression. That's actually in episode 140, not too far back, entitled, Why is Change So Difficult? The Power of Triggers. So if you're interested in listening to more of my discussion on those triggers and how you can manage them, you can tune into episode 140. I've also got it as a link in the show notes. Once you've suffered from a major depression, once you've had ideas about taking your own life in its most severe form, it's easy and it's normal to be quite frightened of sinking to the bottom once again and not being able to get out of that dark place. Andrew Solomon, the author of The Noonday Demon, which is quite a wonderful book on depression, cites the case of a young woman who became quite depressed again after her depression had lifted by meeting someone who loved her and she decided to marry. She was ecstatic. It had been heady to find someone that truly cared for her. She'd gotten off her medicines and felt quite better. But after the wedding, her depression roared back in to the point she was convincing herself she'd made a terrible mistake. He quoted her as she found her way back. Here's the quote. The people who succeed despite depression do three things. First, they seek an understanding of what's happening. Then they accept that this is a permanent situation. Again, she's talking about recurrent depression. Then they have to somehow transcend their experience and grow from it and put themselves out into the world of real people. At first, when I realized I would spend my life doing the mood dance, I was very, very bitter about it. But now I feel like I'm not helpless. So if you struggle with recurrent depression, her advice is don't do what she did and decide, now it's gone, I feel better, but realize that another bout of depression may be waiting for you eventually. But to manage that carefully, to get back into life, to continue my metaphor, my analogy, you have to set sail again. You have to trust that you've done what you could to mend your sail. What does that take? You have to find your courage be attentive to your triggers, cover all your bases, and seek ways that you can grow from actually managing this illness. If you know certain situations are going to put too much strain on your sail, then figure out how to change that so you don't put that strain on yourself. But it doesn't mean that fear has to rule your life. It takes time and sometimes lots of it to learn what your triggers are and to try to manage them well, knowing that at times you may suffer depression again. That can either fill you with foreboding or you can recognize just like people with thyroid conditions or other kinds of medical conditions, they realize that they can do their best to stay stable, but sometimes their illness gets the better of them. So it seems like it takes a combination of patience and courage. But now let's talk briefly about some newer treatments that my own clients are using to address depressions that seem unrelenting or darker episodes that recur. Again, I think these treatments are very promising because just when you think there's nothing else you can try, here come these treatments. Of course, not only are the developing medications that can help and therapeutic strategies that can help, but the stigma of mental illness is finally beginning to decrease. I hope people are more openly seeking treatment. There are two of these treatments that I want to feature today. The first is transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, as it's called. And this is what the Johns Hopkins website describes in TMS. 
TMS is a non-invasive method of brain stimulation that relies on electromagnetic induction using an insulated coil placed over the scalp focused on an area of the brain thought to play a role in mood regulation. The coil generates brief magnetic pulses which pass easily and painlessly through the skull and into the brain. When these pulses are administered in rapid succession, it is referred to as repetitive TMS. This can produce longer-lasting changes in brain activity. Don't get this confused with ECT, or electroconvulsive therapy, which has made great strides in recent decades, but uses an entirely different method of treatment. You should always discuss things like TMS or ECT with a psychiatrist in order to know which might be called for and effective. I've had a couple of clients try TMS now, especially with one. It was highly effective. What she said to me, however, was somewhat similar and mimicked what the woman in Solomon's book said, and I quote her, I don't think it was only the treatment that helped, she means the TMS. I think all the other work I've done, including exercise, therapy, trying different medications, journaling, meditative prayer, and now TMS, they've all worked together so that finally I feel like myself again. What she was saying was that she realized that the things that she had done herself, the things that she was in control of, had been very helpful. And then it was exponentially aided by the TMS. She didn't feel helpless, and she continued to seek answers. There's her courage. There's her patience. The other newer technique that I know about are ketamine infusions. I know there's some work going on with treatment with opioids or very minimal, minimal doses of opioids, but I haven't had time to research that, so I'm not going to talk about it here on this episode. But here's a Harvard article where they talk about ketamine infusions. Ketamine was once used as a drug, which was once used mainly as an anesthetic on battlefields and in operating rooms. Now this medication is gaining ground as a promising treatment for some cases of major depression. Again, they use much decreased amounts of this. Because of its rapid action, ketamine could have a role to play in helping to prevent suicide. I've certainly seen this. It's exciting because it can rapidly reduce life-threatening thoughts and acts and relieve other serious symptoms of depression. Often, treatments for suicidal thoughts and depression can take weeks or even months to take effect. This is also true for talk therapies, antidepressants, and TMS, which takes four to six weeks. They also state, just for your information, that there are two main types of ketamine. There is IV ketamine, which is most often given as an infusion into the bloodstream. And then there's a form of nasal spray called esketamine. So you can either have IV ketamine or esketamine. I've not had anyone do the nasal spray. Everyone that I've seen has done the infusions. I've had several clients, again, do very well with it, although a couple have had to do an infusion every few months for their improvement to be retained. I think these treatments and the research going into depression is very hope-giving. And when you experience recurrent depression, you certainly need that hope. You need to know you're managing your illness, trusting that your sale is as good as it can get, and you realize you're claiming management of your own depression. Here's our listener email for today. This woman is 29. I remember having more of a personality as a child, having stronger opinions, and not caring as much what people thought about me. I just wanted to do the things I enjoyed, such as reading, 
and I tended not to overthink the other things going on around me. But as I got older, I lost some of my personality. Around middle school age, I started being more flexible in my opinions and tastes and started becoming the people around me. I'm still this way, but I have more awareness of it. I can almost always see someone else's point of view in a discussion. This can be helpful when, for example, mediating a discussion in a meeting between coworkers that aren't communicating effectively. It's like I speak everyone's language and can help translate. But I also feel, to continue with that metaphor, that I am only a translator and have no native language of my own. I just speak the language of whoever I'm around. I enjoy a very wide range of music, movies, and books, but am much more likely to gravitate toward the type of media that people I'm with enjoy. I don't think this is in itself bad, but it goes beyond that sometimes. I can relate to the person I'm with, and it feels like that piece of me that is doing the relating takes over the driver's seat of my personality. So I think what she's saying is it goes beyond empathy. It's more like she almost starts resonating on the same frequency as the person in front of her. This was at its worst when my insomnia and lack of emotional control peaked in my late adolescence. Sometimes my speech patterns and opinions began to mimic others I was around to the point that if a person spent a lot of time with me around different groups of people, they could see the changes. One boyfriend hinted that it might be something psychological, but another close friend saw this as being fake. In fact, it was happening without me thinking about it, and I wanted it to stop, but I didn't know what to do about it. I move a little bit slower now and don't feel so emotionally chaotic. That makes it a little easier to take a breath before I join in a conversation and ask if what I'm about to say is true, if I actually think it, or if I'm just making words up, and speak in my true voice. However, I still find it easy to get swept up in conversation and lose my own self a bit. I have read articles about the social chameleon, and it seems close to what I experience, but this kind of self-monitoring seems intentional in all of the material I have found. I can't find anything on it being unintentional. I never consciously chose to do these things. They just happen. Then I feel ashamed or even embarrassed. I almost feel as though I need to start over from square one of becoming a person and developing a personality. I want to be myself in a group of people, but I feel afraid that I don't know who myself is. I'd actually never heard this term social chameleon, so I was very interested in it as well. And I found an article by Dr. Ronald Riggio in Psychology Today in which he describes this phenomenon that she even mentions as high self-monitoring. He says, and I quote, Are you the kind of person who blends in with the crowd, who changes persona to meet the needs of the situation? Are you a social chameleon? Or are you the type of person who displays a consistent personality, regardless of the situation with whom you're interacting? We'll call that type a zebra, because a zebra doesn't change its stripes. What we're talking about is the personality construct of self-monitoring. Self-monitoring refers to the desire and ability to monitor one's own social behavior in order to adapt to a particular situation or person with which you're interacting. High self-monitors are like social chameleons. They engage in high levels of self-presentation and present different versions of themselves depending on the situation. They blend in. Low self-monitors, on the other hand, are not as focused on nor as skilled in self-presentation and tend to behave consistently across different situations and groups. Like the zebra, they don't change their stripes. 
High self-monitors are more likely to get along with others, are more successful in social situations, are more likely to attain leadership positions, and have broader social networks. On the downside, high self-monitors desire to fit in. That means that they're more likely to blindly follow the crowd. And because of their ever-changing nature, over time, others may feel that they're somewhat phony and that they don't really know the person. With low self-monitors, what you see is what you get. So that's what Dr. Reggio had to say. And so here's my answer to her. I actually also included that quote in my answer to her. I certainly see your point. He's saying that social chameleons choose or desire to do this self-monitoring. It's a conscious choice, not an unconscious one as what you describe. I don't know any books except perhaps ones on setting boundaries with others. I would have a suspicion that your high self-monitoring may have to do with fear of conflict or rejection, even though, as you say, you're ending getting rejected because of doing it. One of my best guesses is that whatever family situation you grew up in, independence and self-expression may not have been encouraged. This could happen for various reasons. Maybe you had a narcissistic parent or you were overly close to one parent or the other. You described that by your teenage years, you had begun to lose yourself. This is actually common with teenagers. No one wants to look different than the people they're around or want to be around. But it sounds as if this behavior continued for you. And yes, it has its benefits. As you point out, you're very empathic. But if you never disagree with what's said or valued around you, then as you say, you lose yourself. Your identity is what I'd call diffused with a lack of clarity or not well-established boundaries. This can also happen with someone who's been abused. You weren't allowed to speak safely, so you stopped speaking. I checked, and here's a recent article on the best books on boundary setting. And to you, the listeners, that link is also in your show notes. You can begin to look for opportunities as you begin to manage this more. What feelings do you have right before you're about to speak, if your opinion is different than the one that's being discussed? Is it fear, embarrassment, insecurity? Again, like we spoke of before, are you afraid of being rejected or ridiculed? You might also look to see where you have found courage in other things. And maybe that can give you some insight into how you could find your courage now. Let me know how it goes as you find your own voice. And remember, you're 29. You've got a whole life in front of you. Some people, unfortunately and sadly, feel invisible all their lives. And you've got great awareness of this so you can begin to create more of your own identity. Good luck to you. My gratitude to all of you for being here at Self Work. I'm always touched by seeing people who leave positive reviews, and even I'm touched sometimes more painfully, but I'm touched when someone leaves a constructive criticism. I learn from all of that. So please review me on iTunes or wherever else you listen. You're my best advertisement. So I count on you to grow self-work. Thanks so much. I do have a book out called Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. And Amazon has it on sale basically now. I think they dropped it after Thanksgiving and they've left it there. So it's a really good thing. It's also an e-book if you'd rather buy it there. And of course... I so appreciate you leaving reviews on Amazon for that book after you've read it. I cannot tell you how much I count on each one of you doing that because it is your words that are going to inspire others to risk by the book and see how they can begin to confront their own perfectionism 
just like the podcast, you are my best advertisement. So just a sentence or two, a simple, this really helped me. I got this. I learned a lot from it. Whatever it happens to be, you can just speak from your heart. There are plenty of ways to get in touch with me. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can go to my website at DrMargaretRutherford.com and subscribe there. You'll get a weekly newsletter, which is a really easy way to keep up with me, what I'm doing, what I'm writing about, what I'm talking about. I promise that's all you'll get. Or I now have a Facebook closed group at Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And I'd love to have you there. It's a widely diverse group of people, but one that's very supportive of both your strengths and your struggles. So thanks again for being here for episode 164. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.